So this morning, um, I'm going to do something a little bit different. This is a different kind of a of a sermon um, because uh, it, it's it's not my typical um, preaching style. My typical preaching style, if you haven't noticed, is is that we open up a passage of scripture and we we walk through that passage of scripture kind of almost on a verse-by-verse fashion, but um, walking it through, explaining it, sometimes picking out words and saying, hey, this is, this is what this word meant, what the original author intended um, for us to understand. Um, this sermon's a little bit different in that we're not going to be walking through a passage per se and really looking at all of the details of that passage. Um, but, um, but I think that what we're going to dive into this morning is, is really, really good and interesting because it really helps us understand that question of is, is why do we celebrate Christmas? Um, and I could actually throw in there, and this is just kind of a, a key, hopefully, to get your attention is, is why do we celebrate Christmas when the early church did not? That should have surprised some people. Um, so we'll, we'll get into that um, a little bit here in just a moment. And so I'm going to read a passage out of Luke chapter 2. If you have a Bible, we didn't put this on um, the screens this morning, um, but actually it's in Luke chapter 1. Um, one of the things that I, I want for us to understand, and all Christians really need to understand this, is, is that the, the New Testament is firmly rooted in history. Now, that should be a given, um, but it's not um, for a lot of people these days because when people read um, the New Testament, a lot of times they maybe compare it to other religious stories and they don't see that this isn't just a story, this is history. And, and we can know that it's history because of the way that it's presented to us. And so like even where we're going to be at this morning in Luke, Luke writes this as history not as a separate story, not, not as just something to encourage us or, or to inspire us and to, and to pull nice truths from, from a, a good story like a, like a fable um, or anything like that. But no, Luke is presenting this as history. And we know that he's presenting as, as history because of the way that he introduces the book of Luke. And so in Luke chapter 1, he, he begins by saying, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. And so a lot of, a lot of people have undertaken um, the task of, of, of telling you what has happened. He said, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. And so he's saying is, is that what I'm writing right now, this comes from the eyewitnesses. And, and he's referring to those people who witnessed everything that Jesus said and did. The, the work of God among us. And then he says, therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. And so Luke is writing this and he's presenting this to Theophilus. And Theophilus was probably an individual who said, I want those stories written down. And that was a very expensive task in the first century a lot of times, is a lot of times a sponsor would sponsor someone to do the writing of the historical books. And, uh, and so he's writing for Theophilus, who, who probably became a Christian not too long ago. Theophilus, that's, that's actually, is, is, it's probably a Greek name. 
And uh, so he's writing this probably to someone who's Greek, who would become a Christian, who wants the story about Jesus written down. And so it's presented to us as history, not just as a story, not just as, as a neat parable or, or fable or anything like that, but as history. And that's really important for us to understand because in there, we get the story about the birth of Christ. And so in verse 26, it says, and before um, I read verse 26, I want to read you something from this book right here. This is the virgin birth of Christ. I'm going to refer to it a couple of times in the sermon. This was written by a guy who is virtually famous in some circles, but has been forgotten by much of the church. He wrote this in in, uh, 1965 was the first edition. It's a 400 page um, book on the virgin birth of Christ. To be exact, 397 pages, but only a few of us care about that kind of stuff. But the reason why he's virtually famous in some circles is, is because um, he, was, he was in his day in the 1960s when the church was beginning to lose the foundation of scripture. And this has to be done at least every decade. Someone has to say, is, is, no, we have a foundation in scripture that we can trust. And so he wrote this just on the virgin birth of Christ. And he, he wrote, here's all of the beliefs about what's being said about this. But, but here's what he says at the very end. After 396 pages of writing about this, he says this. The New Testament presentation of Jesus, and he uses some big words here, is not an agglomeration. It's not just pulling stuff from all kinds of places and, and making it up. Um, it's an organism. And that organism is of the virgin birth and it's integral. Remove that part and the whole becomes harder, not easier to accept. The New Testament account of Jesus is most convincing when it's taken in whole. Only one Jesus is presented in the word of God. And that Jesus did not come into the world by ordinary generation, but was conceived in the womb of the virgin by the Holy Spirit. And you can't miss that. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 and following. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid. Mary, you have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she, who is said to be barren, is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. And the angel left her. So in the next few weeks, I'm going to do... um, I'm going to do something that I haven't done before, and I'm actually going to talk about the traditions of Christmas. Not the modern traditions of Christmas, 
I want to talk about the foundational traditions of Christmas at its Christian roots. Over 160 countries around the world celebrate Christmas. In some countries like Pakistan, it's not a national holiday, um, but it is a Christian holiday, and Pakistan recognizes it. China does not allow Christmas celebrations. Hong Kong does. We're going to see if that continues. Christmas um, is not celebrated in Afghanistan, Iran, Israel, Japan, Morocco, North Korea, and a number of other countries, maybe with the exception is is that Christians would celebrate it. But it's not um, necessarily a national holiday in those countries. I think it's only 35 countries that don't officially celebrate Christmas um, as, as a national holiday. And in Germany, it's interesting because uh, Christmas gifts are exchanged on Christmas Eve rather than on Christmas Day. And thus, um, the reason why uh, my wife's family is wrong and my family is right, (laughs) the Germans got it wrong. Um, So, Kim might be watching on live stream. She can't say anything. (laughs) So, um, that was actually introduced by Martin Luther. And now my wife can use this against me because Martin Luther felt that Christmas Day should focus on Christ's birth, not gifts. So I hope she's not listening on the live stream. So (laughs) Germany is also the origin of Christmas trees. Um, The tree is typically brought into the home on Christmas Eve, and then it's decorated um, by mom and the children of the family. So kind of interesting. Christmas Eve in Poland, the main um, festive meal is served after a day of fasting. Um, Families usually have a 12-course meal to represent the 12 disciples. That sounds like fun after a day of fasting. (laughs) Christmas Eve ends with Pasturka, the midnight mass at the local church. And so Christmas um, Day in Poland is um, spent um, attending mass and visiting friends. In Russia, Christmas is celebrated on January 7th due to the 13-day difference between the newer Gregorian candle and the older Julian calendar. On New Year's Eve, um, Grandfather Frost brings presents to the children. Interesting. Christmas is not a national holiday in Japan. There are very few churches and very few Christians in Japan. It's interesting is, is that our group of churches, we actually have sister churches in Japan. And you can pray for the pastors there because ministry is very, very difficult in Japan. And churches tend to be very small. Christmas is seen as a time to spread happiness in Japan. Many of the traditions um, of Christmas in Japan have been taken from the West. Now, here's a fun one. Some Christmas gifts are exchanged. Um, Christmas parties are held around Christmas Day. But during the 1970s, an advertising campaign made it popular to eat KFC on Christmas Day. And so in Japan, Kentucky Fried Chicken is the meal of the day. (laughs) So um, what does this have to do with the origins of Christmas? Um, We just uh, marked the start of Advent, and at the end of the service, we're going to light the Advent wreath. Um, Advent marks the beginning of the celebration of Christmas birth. Advent means coming. Um, And... uh, and it helps us to count down the, the time to Christ coming into the world. 
Um, it's, uh, it's an important part of the Christmas celebration. In fact, in some ways, we need to recover um, Advent so that we can truly recover Christmas. We read the birth stories in the New Testament at Christmas time. As Christians, we do that. Not everyone does. We, we read the passages of Scripture like I read earlier that remind us of the birth of Christ, that it was God-derived, that it's God-ordained, and God-initiated. Mary received God's Word, and that Word became manifest literally inside of the womb. Which is why John in John 1, 1 through 4 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. And that Word is, is, is literally Jesus. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of mankind. And then in verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. We call this the doctrine of the incarnation. It's the doctrine of God taking on flesh. And the amazing thing about this doctrine is that, and this is borderline heresy right here, is that God changed. God became that which he was not before. So he didn't change in his character, but he took on flesh. He took on all of the restrictions and the boundaries of a physical body, all of the things that you and I experience. When you think about it, it's really profound because God, who is unchanging in his character, took on flesh, making the creator dependent on the creation. For the first time, God could catch a cold. That's something to think about, isn't it? He experienced hunger as a physical experience. He had all of the physicalness that you and I have. Mary's um, question to the angelic messenger when she heard God's message to her is, how can this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born is called the Son of God. The Holy Spirit literally placed the word in the womb so that Jesus could be born in the flesh. So Gresham uh, Macon, in um, this 400-page book, talks about the virgin birth of Christ. In the introduction, he says is that the virgin birth of Christ is either a, a fact or not a fact. But whatever you believe, it is a fact that requires explanation. So one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about this this morning is is because one of the accusations 
about Christmas is, is that it's not all that it's purported to be. And it's particularly an accusation against Christians. And the accusation is, is that Christians stole their story from pagan religions. So where did Christians get the idea of a virgin birth? We should know that. Was Jesus really born on December 25th? Interesting. Where did Christmas trees, Yule logs, and other stuff come from? How much were they associated with paganism? In 2008, um, Bill Maher, did I say that right? Kyle, Maher, 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 spelled Maher, Maher. In 2008, Bill Maher, who's a comedian, which we automatically should trust him because he's a comedian. If it's funny, it's true, right? Um, he came out with a documentary called Religulous. Um, the title of the film is a word combination derived from the words religious and ridiculous. So you can automatically um, put together um, his assumptions. And he made all kinds of claims in the documentary, the most striking claim being that the story of Jesus, especially his birth, was copied from the Egyptian god Horus. Mark claimed um, that Horus was born of a virgin on December 25th. Now, accusations like these cause all kinds of questions. Imagine if you were watching this and your children were in the room, and you didn't know how to respond to a claim like this. But that happened is, is millions of people saw this claim and drew assumptions from it. So this causes all kinds of questions. How seriously can we take the claims of the Bible? How seriously can we take the Christmas story? This week I was listening to a conversation between Glenn Sunshine and Shane Morris. Um, Shane Morris is an author. Um, he's a host of a, of a talk show called the Colson Center's um, Upstream uh, podcast. And he interviewed Glenn Morris and asked him, how accurate are the claims of those of Bill Maher? Glenn is a professor of history at the Central Connecticut State University. He's a senior faculty member of the Colson Center, and he said that they are total nonsense. I wouldn't take them seriously at all. The truth is that there is not one single thing that Mar said about the Egyptian myth about Horus that is true. Horus was the son of Osiris and Isis. He was not born of a virgin. He was not born on December 25th. He did not have 12 followers. Mar's main source was an Egyptologist who was self-taught by the name of Jared Ma- Gerald Massey, and he was known for being very speculative on what he wrote. He wrote and went evidence-free of his claims, especially with what he wrote about Egyptian mythology and Christ. And so he wrote a long time ago. Bill Maher picked it up and said, "Ah, oh, it must be true. Finally, Christians are proven wrong. Um, except that his source was a bad source, and historians have said that, that the guy that wrote these things didn't know what he was talking about. He literally was being speculative, making them up. Now, I decided to address this because I've heard these claims before. <clears throat> I've heard them in the church. I've, um, I've not always known how to respond to them. <clears throat> You've probably heard things like it also, and if you haven't, then you will. Um, because your kids will hear this at school. 
they will hear that Christians got their stories from the pagan religions. And so it's good for us to be able to respond. I heard this going through college. I didn't always know how to respond. Often I didn't know how to respond. Christians have been accused of stealing their stories. With Bill Maher, it was Horus. The other one that you will hear is the Roman god Mithras. Interestingly, all of the stories about Mithras come to us after the stories that are found in the New Testament. So it's hard to argue that the stories of Mithras, which come after the New Testament, influence the New Testament writers unless you have a time machine. Mithras was not born of a virgin. He was born from a rock. Now, one might be able to argue that the rock was a virgin. (laughs) But we typically don't make those kinds of associations. (laughs) Sorry. He did not have 12 disciples. The main story that we have about him is, is that he fought a monstrous bull. He did not die by crucifixion. He never actually died, so he couldn't be resurrected. The only possible connection is is that he ascended into heaven when he was done on earth and took his position among the pantheon of God. But even that part of the myth doesn't connect very well to the story of Christ. People make these kinds of claims. There are claims about Karishma, the Indian deity, that Jesus went to Tibet and he studied Tibetan Buddhism. Now remember, though, that Tibetan Buddhism didn't exist at the time of the New Testament writings. And the real account of Christ's birth is found in the Gospels. It's in the New Testament. For people who have bought into the Jesus myth teachings, which is a set of teachings that's out there right now that teaches that this is just a myth, and that there's no real documentation about his life, that's actually not true. Because if you're going to use those standards where you throw out the New Testament, then you have to actually throw out all of the ancient ancient documents of the world. Because they have to be held to the same standard that people want to hold the New Testament to. If you can't trust the New Testament, then you can't trust any of the ancient documents that are historical in nature. The fact of the matter is, is that Jesus' life is the best attested source that we have from the ancient No ancient documents that can stand in the way that the New Testament can. Because of both the quality and the quantity of the manuscripts that we have about Jesus' life in the rest of the New Testament. There's no other historical document in the ancient world that holds the credibility that the New Testament does. There are not the number of documents, nor the level of accuracy in their transmission, or the quality of the documents. The sources of the New Testament are not only thorough, they are reliable. Why is this important at the celebration of Christmas? So, the truth is, is that Easter was the central feast and celebration of the early church. The early church didn't celebrate Christmas at all. 
That comes as a surprise to many. They celebrated Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, that takes some explanation, though. The early church did not celebrate birthdays at all. That, um, that, that not celebrating birthdays is actually from Judaism. In early Judaism, the date of a person's birth was not the day that they were born in the way that we see it. The date of a person's birth is the date of conception. Which is why Christians talk, to, talk about the sanctity of human life from the point of conception, not birth. A baby doesn't have value on the day that it comes outside of the womb. A baby has value on the day that it is conceived. And it's why in Psalm 139, the psalmist can say, you knew me before I was even in my mother's womb. And so for Jews and early Christians, they didn't celebrate birthdays because the true birthday was conception. That was the day that you came into the world. The early church celebrated the day that you died because that was the day that you entered into heavenly courts. So when you think about it and you think about why did the church celebrate the feast days of the saints, which as Protestants we struggle with because you know, of, of how that can turn into almost worshiping saints. But why did the early church celebrate the feast days of the saints, the, the people that gave their life for their faith in Christ? They celebrated it because that was the day that the saints joined God in heaven. So given that they didn't think that birthdays were all that significant, they didn't even think about celebrating Jesus' birth in the way that we do. It was around 200 AD that people began to try to settle on the date of Jesus' birth. Tertullian um, was an early historian, and he was one of the people who picked the date of December 25th. Others set it in April and, and some on May, and, and it's because they were trying to figure out the historical timeline of events. The first celebration of Christmas, the first official celebration of Christmas, was around 336 AD. And here's the reason why. is because it was the first time that Christianity moved from being illegal to legal. It was the first time that they could celebrate publicly. So when people make the claim that December 25th was not likely the date of Christ's birth, there is some truth to that. A lot of people claim December 25th was chosen to co-opt a Roman pagan holiday like Saturnalia or Sol Invictus. That idea actually comes from the ninth century, so a thousand years after the New Testament writings. The first time that we get any teaching that the date of Christmas was chosen to co-opt a pagan holiday was 1,000 years later. And so the modern um, teaching that it's about co-opting pagan religions, that's probably not accurate. And I can't go into all of the data because there's a ton of historical data about this. But when you look at the historical circumstances, it's really hard to argue that Christians co-opted Sol Invictus. Saturnalia is an older festival. 
And it's possible that Christmas was set up in competition with it, except that when you read the early church fathers, and when you read what they think about the birth of Christ, you find that it actually has nothing to do with paganism, but it has to do with Judaism and the Jewish concept of birth. Judaism believed that important events happened on the same date. This is kind of hard to catch. You got to listen closely. For example, the Jews believed that the world was created on the 14th day of Nisan. That's the calendar, the Hebrew calendar, which is also the day of the Passover, which they associate with the birth of Abraham. Interestingly, the 14th day of Nisan is also the day that Jesus was crucified. I love it this morning that we sing Christmas carols. So Christmas, and then we had the crucifixion in our worship this morning. And one might say that that's inappropriate, but actually it's totally appropriate. Because everything that we believe is on those hinges. If Jesus was crucified on that date, which is totally historical, then the assumption is that he left the world on the same day that he entered the world. Because Jews believe significant events happen on the same day. That he left the day on the same day he entered the world. And so when you think about this, when you remember that Judaism, in Judaism, you enter the world on the day that you were conceived, the Holy Annunciation, the, the scriptures that we read about the messenger, the angel coming to Mary and speaking, the Holy Annunciation must have occurred on the 14th day of Nisan. Once you've got that, And since the Passover is connected to the spring equinox, you add to that date nine months. And then you're very near the winter solstice. And when you convert from the Hebrew calendar to the Julian calendar, you come up with the date of December 25th. In the Eastern Church, Now, here's where it gets complicated. Some people converted the calendar in a different way. And so in the Eastern Church, it's the 6th of April. That's why the Eastern Church has a different date, because it's all on how you convert the calendars. In the Western Church, and in some parts of the Eastern Church, it's December 25th. In a few areas, it's January 6th, Russia because of the conversion to the Gregorian calendar. And so January 6th is what we know as Epiphany, is celebrated as the birth date of Christ in places like Russia, which we celebrate as the arrival of the Magi, which is celebrated also on the birth, on the date of Jesus' baptism. So there's a whole bunch of history in here. So if you have Greek Orthodox relatives, which I assume most of you don't, (laughs) you know how confusing this can be. It has to do with how you convert the date of Passover from the Hebrew calendar to the Julian or Gregorian calendars. 
we know that it's very unlikely that Christians picked the date of Christ's birth because they wanted to co-opt some pagan holiday. The more likely story is that early Christians were thinking like Jews. They calculated forward nine months from Passover and came up with the date of Jesus' birth. We may not give much credence to that way of thinking. We may call it superstitious. Or maybe we could say that the ancients knew better than we did. And that we should give them credit. They had insights that modern people have forgotten. Even though we don't have exact evidence for when Jesus was born, December 25th is very fitting. The solstice is a time for celebrating Christ's birth because it's the time when light begins to increase and darkness begins to roll back. The sun begins to take more of the day. The advent of light. This was St. Augustine's argument. And there are other early church writers that picked up from Malachi that Jesus is the son of righteousness rising with healing in his wings. And that this point is the point when the sun begins to make its comeback. Now, come back to the incarnation of Christ. Christians began celebrating the birth of Christ about 200 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. But they did it because of the virgin birth. The incarnation is so central to what it means to be a Christian that Christians treated it as a fact. Gresham Makem, in his exhaustive study on the virgin birth of Christ, says the following. He says, Irenaeus, an agent minor, was taught by Polycarp. Polycarp was a student of the disciple John. Irenaeus Clement of Alexandria in Egypt, Tertullian in North Africa. And, um, and so you have these places, Egypt, North Africa, Asia Minor. They all, in their various places, attested to their belief in the virgin birth. They treated it as an essential fact about Christ and about the Christian faith. You can't have Christianity in truth without the virgin birth. He says the importance of this fact should not be underestimated. In the first place, it is obvious that this is no new or strange doctrine that's been incorporated into Christianity. Belief in the virgin birth was universal in the Roman church and was probably required of anyone who was getting baptized. Because baptism is really a declaration of being a Christian in the early church You could not be baptized unless you confessed the virgin birth as well as the resurrection. Then in second place, the central position of the Roman church, and remember we're in the Roman world at the time, makes it probable that this was an essential belief in Rome, but also an essential belief of all the church everywhere that it was. Why is this true? Why is this true? 
because that's what the disciples taught. That's what's in the New Testament. As we celebrate the coming of Christ, it's important for us to hold all of God's truth, both in our mind and in our heart. As we celebrate Jesus' coming, we recognize um, the brokenness of our world and that he comes into the brokenness. He's not a far off and distant God. He is the God who comes, who takes upon himself flesh, who lives the perfect life that we can't live. And then dies for us in order to redeem us from sin. This season is often known as a season of happiness, but the truth is is that that's not always true. But one of the things that as Christians that we know is, is that joy is very different from happiness. The Bible says is that the joy of the Lord is my strength. And that we can be joyful even if happiness is a little bit harder to grasp. God gives us a joy that's incomparable. We can choose to live in resentment, anger, fear, faithlessness. Or we can pursue the joy of the Lord. And really, when we read the Christmas story, we find that God is the one who comes to us in our circumstances. And that we can trust Him, even in the midst of doubt. Isaiah 26, 4 says, Trust in the Lord forever. Because in Yahweh, the Lord is an everlasting rock. As Christ followers, we aren't pressured to do it all or to be it all. We aren't trusting in our works. We're trusting in Jesus. And he does the living. He does the heavy lifting for us. The key is, is to respond in much the same way as Mary did. I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it be done to me according to your word. We can receive it. Receive the word of the Lord. We can also celebrate it, even in the midst of the crazy things going on. The first thing that the angels said to mortals, fear not. Fear not. God will take care of us no matter what happens.
no matter what you go through, you can hear the simple truth. God is with you. He is your victory. He helps you overcome defeat. He's with you at all times and in all things. I'm going to end this way. I'm not as confident as what Kyle thinks I should be. What if we were um, to sing, Come Let Us Adore Him, just a cappella? I'm going to need your help. (laughs) But let's try that. And I'm actually going to turn off my mic for the sake of the live stream. (laughs) Louise, could we put that up on the screen? but it's an appropriate way to end. Father and Lord God, you're so good and you're so gracious. Lord, thanks for your word. Lord, it's amazing to hear how you've worked in history. Not just a story, history. And that that history becomes our story by faith in Jesus Christ. If you haven't put your faith in Jesus, then I want to encourage you to do that. To know that your Savior stepped out of heaven that that word which existed before creation began and that brought all things that we know into being, that it entered the womb of Mary and became flesh and lived the perfect life and died on the cross for each one of us. And if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, then I want to encourage you to do that. Just say, thank you, Jesus. And just say, God, forgive me for my sin. I trust in Jesus. I follow him. And when you do that, the Bible says that you become a child of God. Father and Lord God, thank you. Be with us as we go. Help us to celebrate Advent and Christmas well. As we remember the first coming of Jesus and as we look for the day when he will come again. Thank you, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen.